one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 334 for the week of Sunday, August 7th, 2011. I'm Sawyer and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. Can't wait. This is going to be a fun show. Looking forward to it as well. Welcome also, Mark Ratterman. Hello, Sawyer, and hello everybody out there listening to us in radio podcast land. <laughs> Also joining us tonight is the man behind the intro and outro music that you hear every time you listen to this podcast. Please welcome Todd Cecilio. Hi, how you doing, guys? Uh, very nice to be here. Uh, I know Gina couldn't make it tonight, and uh, word is that she was seen on a date with Elmo uh, at a restaurant nearby her home. <laughs> so, uh, all that other stuff she was talking about is baloney. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not true. But thank you very much. I'm I'm really honored. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> Love it. All right. Yeah, as you can see, he fits right in with the Talking Space family. So let's get things started off with our first story, which is... Do you know what we're going to talk about? I do. That is the Juno spacecraft, which launched successfully aboard an Atlas V rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It launched successfully on August 5th, 2011, and is now heading on its way on its five-year journey to reach Jupiter. And Mark, you were there for the launch, so could you give us a little bit of an update on what went on? My pleasure, and uh, it's interesting that uh, unless you want to count my driving down the, uh, the highway one time through Central Florida and seeing something strange in the sky which I eventually figured out was a nighttime rocket launch of some kind. This is a long time ago. I couldn't tell you when, 10 years or better ago. But this was my first uh, launch other than the space shuttle that I've seen. And uh, I will say this, the Atlas V, I'm impressed. When I read about it beforehand and I started to get a grasp of the vehicle specs, and I realized that uh, not only is it a first-stage booster, but it uh, also has five SRBs attached to it. I thought, well, this could be pretty good. And it was really quite good. Uh, some of the press was up on the roof of the VAB. Some of the press was on the roof of the Launch Control Complex building, which is about a four-story building. And I was in the group that was on top of the LCC. And uh, good vantage point. You can see the pad. You're as close, I guess, as anybody is uh, – able to, to get to the pad with it being out on Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And the launch did not go on time, which is a kind of a switch from what we're used to with, with shuttle launches, where 
they generally have about a 10-minute window. Well, this was a total of a 69-minute window, and about 51 minutes of it was used up with uh, what started out as uh, we're going to delay resumption of our countdown for five minutes, followed by we're going to delay our countdown by five additional minutes, followed by we're going to delay our countdown by five additional minutes. And after a while, you pretty much lost track, and you were just hoping that they would give you a new T0 time, which they did twice, and eventually the uh, the final T0 time ended up being uh 12.25 Eastern Daylight Time, 16.25 UTC, and she did launch on time. The delays were due to some technical problems, uh, one of which there were two problems, I guess, that were the primary things they were concerned with. Uh, one was a boat that got in the range safety area and had to be uh, escorted out by helicopters, I guess, intercepting him. That didn't help. And the other thing was a uh, problem that initially, when you heard about it on the on the, uh, the launch audio, it, it didn't quite make sense because they were talking about a uh, a problem with the charging uh, operation of the booster and its charging. What are they talking about? And at one point, I heard something that sounded like they were not talking about electrical; they were talking about gas or chirogenics or something. Ended up being helium. And I have a, a little bit of an appreciation for the importance of it. When I looked into the uh, some of the information available on the Atlas V, it turns out that uh, on the upper on the Centaur upper stage, the the cryogenic tanks are insulated insulated with a combination of helium purged insulation blankets, and it was helium that uh, that they were having a, a, a glitch with. And basically, they were seeing this this helium charging. They referred to it, but the 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 flow of helium onto the upper stage. They were seeing it occurring more than they wanted to, and they had to determine: okay, why is this? Is there a leak on the stage? Is it a leak on the ground? What's the nature of this problem? Can we fly? Can we fly safely? And they finally determined that they could launch. They uh, they started watching some uh, kind of like a secondary circuit, a backup circuit that proved uh, that they had good helium flow to the upper stage, and, uh, and then she did launch. And it was impressive. Those five SRBs make, uh, you know, not, not the same show as you see with a space shuttle, and anybody that's seen several or many of both would probably dispute uh, perhaps my opinion of it, but uh, I thought it was good. It was, you had a lot of vibration, you had a lot of rumble, you didn't have quite the same intensity that you do with a shuttle, but a uh, real, real bright, uh, you know, plume as it ascended. Uh, one of the press made the statement to somebody else. They said, wow, it just really seemed to jump off the pad. And they said, yeah, that's that kick you get with the Atlas 551 configuration. And uh, the uh, afterwards, there was a press conference where they discussed, uh, of course, launch and the operation of the spacecraft. And basically what it amounts to is that everything was nominal, nominal, nominal. Uh, one, of the, one of the folks at the press conference from JPL, Jan Chodas, she's the project manager, uh, she made that, that exact statement. She said everything was good. The, uh, the, the booster dropped us off right where it was supposed to. She said uh, solar arrays deployed. We started getting power within minutes of solar array deployment. Our battery operation, they could operate on battery for six-plus hours. Uh, on ascent, their batteries were 
discharged to about 90%, so they had plenty of reserve on battery. Uh, the arrays did uh, deploy normally, and then they were on solar arrays. Uh, they had com- they verified command capability. They could send a command up to Juno, and it processed it, and you know gave them a, a good confirmation. The spacecraft was stable. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and we won't won't spend much time on this, but the actual launch and flight from from Earth orbit or from uh, Earth departure to to Jupiter is quite a complex thing. Initially, the uh, the spacecraft is not spinning, but the Centaur stage puts it into a uh, a, a spin that when the solar arrays deploy, it spins down to 0.4 RPM, and then Juno spins it back up to 1 RPM, and that's the way it flies from from here around the solar system. Uh, back around Earth and back to Jupiter and out to Jupiter, I should say. But it uh, is, is spin-stabilized. Um, when the Centaur dropped them off, they were pointed in the right direction for sun on the solar arrays, so they didn't have to use any any fuel to, to reorient the spacecraft. And it just went really well. They, they mentioned something. This, this, to me, was interesting, that... Um, after separation from the Centaur stage, they were coming up on Australia, and the ESA station at Perth, part of the Deep Space Network, that Perth uh, picked them up 24 seconds after they were separated from the Centaur stage, and then Canberra, which is partway, uh, most of the way across the continent, Canberra picked them up 39 seconds, and so they had locked up communications with the spacecraft tracking Deep Space Network less than a minute after deployment from the upper stage. And so they were, uh, you know, Jan was just real, real pleased as punch about how everything had gone. And uh, the launch, you know, that's one thing that took some getting used to is the standing around and and hearing this five-minute delay, five-minute delay, five-minute delay. But uh, she made it on day one of their planned uh, launch opportunities that they had in August, and off she goes. I remember the anticipation of waiting for it to go it was just crazy. Now, what was it like with the the other media that was there? What was their reaction? Because most of them were probably used to covering shuttle events only, right? Well, it was it, there was excitement. Uh, the photographers, you know, they were they were doing the thing that I'm still envious of. I mean, they were getting phenomenal pictures, and I saw some of them back at the news center later, and uh, some of them had remote cameras out at the pad. And, uh, you know, they were they were as involved in this uh, as far as that part of, of what they do as as with the shuttle. The, the of course, the number of people that were covering it was quite quite a bit smaller. Uh, gee, I would say on top of the uh, LCC building, there was less than 20. Uh, Bill Nye was there. He was he was up on the roof, of the LCC with us. And. Uh, one of the media escorts offered to sell him his umbrella, but they didn't work out anything. So he baked in the sun with the rest of us. Um, not sure how many people were up on the VAB roof, but uh, you know they they had the same focus that I've seen with uh, with others. And of course, what I did miss out on was the two days before they had a pre-launch briefing. I missed out on those. I wasn't able to get down, but uh, business as usual, I would say, and uh, a couple more to come the rest of the year. Hey Mark, dumb dumb question here. Um, as far as, as far as the press was concerned, 
Uh, you were there with me for SGS-129. How how did it compare to that group? Because in all honesty, there really wasn't a lot of press over there for 129. You know, I mean, there, there was a there was a tremendous amount of press for obviously for for SGS 135, but there wasn't a whole lot for for 129 or or even 132 for that matter. So I'm just wondering how the how the the crowd was as compared to to say you know our experiences from from that flight. It's funny. I wasn't there for 132. I wasn't aware of the press at all on 129. Uh, Got to agree with you. I you know it seemed like hey, where's the crowd to uh, Wave at the uh, Astro van when they stop over, you know, across the street from the uh, from the VAB. Where's the crowd? And it was all the tweet up people that were there, you know, cheering the astronauts on their way out to the pad. Um, I would say it's light. I mean, 40, 50 people maybe this time around. That's kind of sad, actually. <laughs> I have to before I saw a tweet actually that said that there were more people at the NASA tweet up than the press themselves, which is. Uh, kind of sad oh yeah Yeah. and thank you because that's a good point because at at launch from the roof of the lcc you heard a chair and it wasn't the press that was surrounding us there it was the folks you know half a mile away watching the launch from the uh out by the countdown clock that was that was kind of cool but i'm i'm glad that the uh uh, you know it sounds like the tweet up though was an absolute success bill nye i I think as you mentioned was that on on top of the building with you uh he was there to give a presentation to the uh to tweet up folks so and i got a little bit of an insight watching twitter as far as uh what those folks were were talking about there so it was a it was it was a, a a good powerful event so again um uh as a side uh who, uh, to Stephanie Scherholz and everybody else that organizes those things. Wow, you, you guys outdid yourself again from all indications. Um, why don't we talk just re- really quick recap a little bit about what, what Juno is and what it's going to do. Essentially, uh, the way I, I hear it is that it is actually going to go ahead and discover the recipe to go ahead and make planets by looking at Jupiter and sort of diving into its structure and how it was created, correct? Yes, Yep. So um, that will be uh, part of the exciting mission. Some five years hence, when uh, when we have encounter. So it'll. You know, I'm looking forward to that. Um, hey, hey, Todd, you've had something with reference to uh, uh, the uh, the Atlas, correct? Yeah, the um, Atlas Five is a really flexible uh, launch vehicle, and from what I've seen, uh, it's flown this five five one configuration to deliver the New Horizons uh, payload, uh, which is out at Pluto. Uh, So it's got some power. Uh, It's delivered to Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter on another configuration. So the flexibility of this, I mean, it's actually been flying since August of 2002. So it's had some trials and uh, makes a lot of sense why we've had some announcements lately and previously to possibly putting a crew configuration together and so i wanted to add that in there also yeah i think too todd that the um uh uh, the mars science laboratory or curiosity is also going to use a similar configuration i think mark i I remember i recall hearing about something like that uh during the press conference yeah i i was uh saw the same thing they're talking about the atlas 5 for for msl right yeah so um, again, Todd, I have to agree with you there. I mean, it looks like it's going to be a flexible. It, it is indeed a flexible booster, and it should be 
It's going to have an interesting future, and we'll be talking about that uh, coming up next. All right, so the next story we're going to talk about involves the Atlas V rocket, as we just mentioned. Except this Atlas V rocket isn't going to be used unmanned. This will be used by Boeing for their new CST-100, which will be their crew vehicle. And they expect to be flying it by 2015, right, Gene? Yeah, it looks that way, and um, it, it, w- it was really a no-brainer. It was actually what we all kind of sort of expected. Um, the, uh, I mean, I believe uh, the uh, folks that uh, are behind the Dream Chaser to uh, Sierra Nevada, they're also looking at it for use of their vehicle. Uh, I know uh, Blue Origin, as much as they'll, they'll, they give us information, is also possibly looking at the Atlas V to uh, – uh, to carry their uh, their new Shepard spacecraft, but the CST-100 is uh, Boeing's offering. It will carry up to, I believe, seven crew um, up to the International Space Station. Uh, and the interesting thing, Sawyer, is that they are actually interviewing for pilots for the CST-100, correct? Indeed, they are. The crew members that they're interviewing are not former NASA astronauts. In fact, the crew members are from their own company. In my opinion, that's not a bad work perk, huh? You work for Boeing, you pass the interview, you go into space aboard their own rocket. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) So, I mean, mean, talk about grand opportunities. If you're one of the designers or if you're one of the people that have have put a configuration together on the uh, the CST-100 and and you, you can you know, you can deal with the rigors of spaceflight physically. Uh, not a bad perk. So, uh, I good luck to those folks that are going to go ahead and fly and fly this thing. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing CST 100 uh, first tested, obviously in an unmanned configuration. But I I can't wait to see it uh, piloted. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the hardware and the configuration, exactly how they're going to do all this. Because to me, it's the what's under the hood that's uh, that's fascinating is to. Uh, how they're going to do it, and what the differences are going to be from what we're used to. Now, the question I have for you guys, and I didn't see this, Atlas V still has to go through a manned rating deal, doesn't it? I, I don't think Atlas V is manned rated yet, um, but I know that there that there are negotiations to do that right now, and uh, uh, it, it should make for, for some more incentive now that uh, Boeing has selected uh, – the Lockheed Martin built uh, Atlas V to uh, to send the CST-100 up, so they've they've got their hands full now. They've, you know, some people have said. I mean, some I recall some of the, the Apollo folks saying that, you know, it's going to be a bear to try to man rate this thing because they were looking at uh, uh, the, the the challenges that they had during Gemini to uh, man rate the Titan II. Uh, missile, which was not supposed to carry men, but was supposed to carry a nuclear payload to a destination. So, uh, you know, this is—it's going to be—it's uh, going to be interesting to watch this. Yeah, it looks like as early as 2006, uh, ULA, uh, the predecessor company Lockheed Martin, was looking at human rating Atlas V, mm-hmm. um, and there's, you know, with the CC. Dev uh, money and some of those things. Uh, looking at the t- in 2010, a uh, development of the emergency detection system for human right. rating Atlas V. So, 
uh, escape system is, you know, it, it, I always seem to think that it, it doubles the amount of time that, you know, when they say we're going to f- fly this thing in 2015 or 2016, I, I, I hate to push it out too far, but, mm-hmm. you know, that it is something that's really a, a sensitive issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard 2017, 2018 for some of the piloted stuff. And just a reminder to everybody, um, ISS is supposed to splash in 2020. So uh, you've only really got about two years of operations, if that's the case. And you're talking about the, the escape systems. Are you actually talking about the escape systems for the for the the, the actual vehicle? You know, the, like for the escape system for like the CST-100 or, or something like that? Because I would figure the escape system would be the um, – uh, responsibility of the individual that's creating the 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 manned capsule or whatever. I mean, the the the, the escape system, for instance, for the CST-100 would be reliable. Would be would have to rely on Boeing to go ahead and put that on there. Correct. Yeah, that that looks like you know it's going to add some additional time on you know per uh, company, uh, and then like you said, that's going to be customized to that particular capsule. Um, it's uh, one of those things that you think about going back to the uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Board report, you know, that mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody's labored over over the last several years. And uh, it's just one of those things that immediately think about when you're talking about putting people on one of these rockets. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the uh, NASASpaceflight.com article announcing um, – the uh, the CST 100 capsule uh, being you know selection on uh, on Atlas V and this was dated August 4. Uh, they are talking about here uh, n- most notably um, the testing closest ma- clo- the testing that they're going to be doing on on uh, on the uh, CST 100 closely matches the uh, the Atlas V human rating effort which is being and I'm quoting directly here, the Atlas V human rating effort, which is being undertaken as an unfunded Space Act agreement as announced as part of the Atlas V's role in the Dream Chaser spacecraft. So um, Boeing looks like it may be actually the beneficiary of uh, Sierra Nevada's decision to possibly use Atlas V. (laughs) They plan to do, you know, a test launch in orbit and come back in 2015. But later that year, they also plan to do a second test specifically revolving around the escape system right just to fire it off to see if it'll work so uh, again i agree that it may end up being pushed back but they're saying first man flights in 2016 i'll you know i'm 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 from missouri (laughs) if you know what i mean i'll believe it when it's sitting on the pad and and has got people in it i just don't want these guys to push i mean we are talking about but yeah i mean i realize that there is a gap and i realize everybody wants to go ahead and close this gap as 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 quickly as possible and i'm for that believe me but i want to make sure that uh we don't get into a go fever mode and and start making mistakes one other thought that i had though is the big problem with all these other private companies is that especially spacex is that both nasa and all the ISS partners have to agree before they send it to the station. So right. are they going to get the approval from the International Space Station partners too? Right, and that's something that's got to be paved 
um, that that has got to be paved uh, over in order to to get that. I mean, I know SpaceX had a had a big row with with uh, uh, the Russian space agency over uh, the rendezvous and docking issue, and uh, uh, the, you know, and, and justifiably so. The the Russians were nervous. Um, they wanted to make sure that this thing worked before it was allowed anywhere near the ISS. And uh, I, I guess um, I, I recall uh, this was talked about a little bit during STS-134 uh, back in uh, April uh, that um, some paperwork was coming uh, from you know, SpaceX uh, to give to the Russian Federation to kind of calm some nerves. And uh, I guess that paperwork has been forwarded, and I guess the Russians have been propitiated, and uh, we will see how this all all pans out. Because I understand, Sawyer, there's going to be a, a flight with SpaceX coming up soon where there's actually going to be a, a rendezvous and docking. Um, and when is that? Is that going to be is that going to be this year? I'm hearing now. Supposedly they moved it up to this year, but I'm not 100% positive. Yeah, because that, that I mean I've heard heard they're going to move it up. Um, I think uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer mentioned that during the STS-135 post-launch brief. Um, at one point, I'm not sure it was either the post-launch or the post-landing brief. I'm not, I don't recall. Um, but uh, uh, where where they were trying to boost that uh, that data up. But the, the, what I was going to say before was that it looks like uh, Boeing may actually be. Uh, the uh, beneficiary of Sierra Nevada's decision to go with with the uh, the Atlas V on this. Uh, so, and as far as far as that's concerned, if you if you've got a competition between a bunch of companies, I think you kind of just threw your competitor a bit of a bone there. <laughs> so, we'll just again, we'll, I I really want all this to work because it's going to be in the country's best interest that it does work. So my hat's off to, to everybody. I hope the Atlas V does go through its man rating process and is man rated quickly. I want the CST-100 in an operational mode. I'd actually like to see, see the Dream Chaser on top of that thing. And uh, we'll just see how all this all this progresses because if, if this whole new brave new world works out the way it's supposed to, we could be seeing a lot more crew and a lot more things going on up, up there in low Earth orbit. Who knows, this may not be the jumping spacecraft to help get us to the ISS and then on to Mars. Which, the only reason I said that transition was because of the fact that our next story involves Mars and a possible finding on the surface of it. And uh, I believe some of us may be flowing with delight if this is true, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way of putting it, Sawyer. I'm looking at a news release that was put out by uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory back on uh, August 4th um, saying that, quote, dark finger-like features appear um, to extend in this area that is uh, called Newton Newton Crater. Um, And apparently these dark finger-like features appear and extend down some, some of the Martian slopes here during late spring through early summer they fade away in the winter and return again next next spring in fact there's an interesting little uh movie uh, or uh i guess it's a set of uh, gif images but uh, it, it, it essentially demonstrates this thing um according to uh alfred McEwen, the best explanation for these things 
is the flow of briny water. Uh, Dr. McKeown is uh, a member of the University of Arizona there in Tucson, um, and uh, he's the principal investigator for the uh, uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter's High-Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, um, which was responsible for finding all of this. Uh, now, is this water? Does it show that there might be a water flow? Eh, jury's still out on that one. Um, it does suggest that uh, um, that the possibility does exist that this could be due to some kind of briny water, but it it might be something else. So it, it you know further study is definitely asked for. In fact, um, there was a, a sort of rebuttal to the finding um, on uh, the American Ge- Geophysical Union blogosphere. Uh, the uh, the writer here was a gentleman by the uh, name of Ryan Anderson, who's a, a PhD candidate over at Cornell University. And um, if anybody's interested, he goes by Mars Chronicler on Twitter. Um, but uh, he basically states in here that uh, we've seen this kind of behavior before. Um, and I will, I'll quote uh, what he writes here, quote, this isn't the first time that streaks have been observed on Mars, nor is it the first time that they have been attributed to liquid water. Mars orbital camera observations discovered a bright streak that appeared in 2001 and 2005. Prior to that, dark slope streaks were thought to be caused by water, but now are generally attributed to dust avalanches. So, uh, again, we, we've got to really figure out what's going on here, and perhaps uh, you might want to consider the next lander or the next uh, little roving device to go over to Newton Crater and have a peek at what's going on. I know that there are problems with you know, contamination and so on. And I've heard, too, that uh, because of uh, you don't want to go ahead and contaminate a possible area that might contain life because uh, that's where there's water. The possibility for life exists, even though it is microbial. Um, and the cost to decontaminate a, a spacecraft to that extent may be prohibitive, but um, – you know, it, to me, it still bears looking at, and maybe we we really should visit that area and see what the heck is really, really going on over there. So, if it is water, and if it is some sort of you know briny material, there is a possibility for some sort of microbial life. But again, let's let's see what's going on. It could be dust flows, but then again, it could be something else. So, we'll we'll just have to see what the future holds for this. We'll find out. It's always good to have a little curiosity when it comes to finding out about Mars. Aha, uh-huh. and yes, and indeed, that's, that little adventure is going to happen right around Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, yep. it, definitely. The, the Mars Science Laboratory is going to be launching to, to go over and, and take a look at the planet, and, and that's an exciting mission, too. I mean, this thing is about the size of a of a Mini Cooper, for, for for God's sake. I mean, it, it, you know, and it's really, really capable. So, uh, and it'll arrive there, and hopefully, you know, the opportunity will also continue continue to chug along as uh, as the days go on. So we'll have two robots, you know, working on Mars. I mean, it, it's kind of exciting to think that people are going to work on Mars every day, albeit robotically. And 
uh, trying to unlock its secrets and again finding things like the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter found uh, this past week so um, again it's an in, a piece of interest and we it, it bears further study and uh, there are two schools of thought on it um, what it might be so you know again it's it's exciting and we should continue to see what's going on over there but let's not get our hopes up too high and i guess that's what the the entire scientific community including those who made the discovery because i believe they they did stress that this could be something else during the press conference that occurred um they were saying that yeah there that that you know indeed that could be that could be it too but we think that the water is is probably the the best explanation so we'll have to we will have to see what the future holds for those well, and speaking of the scientific community, those who are either in the scientific community or love science in general most likely know of the TV series called The Cosmos, hosted by the late Carl Sagan. Well, it turns out they're bringing the show back, and uh, similar to Two and a Half Men, they're getting in a new host, but it's not Ashton Kutcher. Well, the interesting whole thing, the, the whole thing about it, um, and I'm I'm reading from Alan Boyle's article on uh, on Cosmic Log. Um, it first the idea to try to bring Cosmos back came from a very unlikely so- source. Uh, if the name Seth McFarlane rings a bell to this audience, uh, Seth was the creator of the Family Guy cartoon series, um, but. Uh, uh, he thought that um, you know he, he is, as uh, Alan Boyle reports in his story that uh, McFarlane was uh, was born in 1973 um, and was the perfect age to go ahead and start uh, uh, looking at uh, at Cosmos and uh, and the original series that uh, Carl Sagan said was a 13 week labor of love for him. Um, uh, when he initially, and I, I, being a bad boy at the time, I remember him talking about the series on on the Johnny Carson show when he brought along with him the uh, the Voyager One recording that was actually going to be installed on Voyager One. Uh, well, anyway, um, the idea was uh, to go ahead and redo Cosmos for uh, the 21st century. Uh, he initially approached, or Mr. McFarlane initially approached. Uh, uh, the production company that still exists, uh, Andreen, who is um, uh, Carl Sagan's widow, and uh, David Souter, who I believe also put the uh, the uh, or I'm sorry, Steve Souter. David Souter's a, in, in the Supreme Court, duh. Um, but uh, they uh, went ahead and and said, well, okay, it sounds like a grand idea. Let's try to go ahead and reincarnate this. But how do you go ahead and fill the shoes of a giant like Dr. Carl Sagan. Well, uh, after I guess some brainstorm, um, you know, brainstorming, uh, the decision was made that uh, uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, out of the uh, uh, the Hayden Planetarium here in New York, will go ahead and host the program. The interesting thing too, and first off, I can't think of a, a better uh, science evangelist to go ahead and talk about uh, talk about science to a an audience other than Neil deGrasse Tyson. But here's the audience that he's going to be talking to. The new Cosmos series is not going to be going ahead um, and uh, uh, 
put on Discovery or the Science Channel or any any of the, those outlets. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, there, there's they are wonderful outlets, but it's usually preaching to the choir, if you will. Uh, the initial Cosmos series appeared on PBS, and while it did engage everyone, there was only you know. A, a handful of stations when when the initial cosmos appeared you know you had had the three main networks and pbs and that was really really about it um this new iteration of cosmos is going to appear on the fox network which means that it will be seen by people we hope that may have just had just a passing interest in science and i can't get a better individual to go ahead and try to engage one's mind and to try to make things a little, you know, to try to make people think about things that are a little bit bigger than themselves than Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, the man is just an absolute wonderful speaker and a, a very, very compelling individual. And, uh, you know, the, the um, Andrine said that uh, she is writing, and I'm, again, quoting from the uh, uh, Alan Boyle article here, um, Andrine, who, again, was Sagan's widow and helped write the original series, um, said, we are writing it for Neil in Neil's voice. We are not trying to make um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, and even uh, 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 Dr. Tyson said that he is not also trying to be Carl Sagan. He's trying to be himself. So again, this is going to be quite exciting. Um, the series is due to air, I believe, uh, September 2013. They're taking their time with it, which is grand. And uh, I'm I'm very eager to see this this new series and and how they're going to treat it for a 21st century audience on network television. Now the 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 other thing too is a couple other other things. I, I and I may be misquoting Ars Technica, and if I am, my apologies. Or Gizmodo, one of those two outlets, um, in their report basically said, well, you know, Fox, please, you know, I mean, they they canceled Firefly. They don't understand science and all this. I'm like, dude, do you understand? We're not talking about. A, an untried science fiction series. We are talking about an institution, and um, believe me, uh, Fox is going to run the whole thing. They're not going to cancel it after four or five episodes, like you know the the, the, the science the aforementioned science fiction series. So don't worry, you are going to see the entire thirteen weeks, and uh, it is going to be quite quite an event. It is going to be something groundbreaking for network television. And finally, network television showing something that is not going to numb your brain. I am really excited about that. I think it's going to be interesting, and I like how they're basing it not on the Carl Sagan-style cosmos, but on the Neil deGrasse Tyson style, because they're they're doctoring it towards him, not trying to make him Carl Sagan, because nobody could be Carl Sagan. Yeah, and and, and, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said that himself. He said that you know he can't be Carl Sagan. Nobody can. Uh, so it, the the new series is being written in his voice, and that is that's good. That is really good. And I'm sure he's he's going to be having a, a hand in 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 the uh, in in the script writing and so on. And uh, we'll 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 make some of course make some decisions and so on. I'm wondering too if there's going to be another book release because um, released with this one. 
the interesting thing is if you look at the old series, um, which aired, I believe, in 1979 and 1980, um, it uh, <laughs> fairly well uh, from from that that period of time. Yeah, there's a little there's some little differences. Yeah, you know the 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 there's some neat new Hubble findings that weren't around when uh, when the initial series was aired. But if you take a look at uh, the old series, it really holds up very well indeed. And uh, uh, for those of you who haven't taken a look at it, some of you may not have been around when the first series aired. Um, there are snippets of it out there on YouTube, or you know, if, if you can see if you can rent the the, the series somehow. Uh, I would recommend you do it because it was very, very powerful to me anyway. I mean, I just about memorized the, all, all the episodes when I when I first watched it, and uh, uh, it was it, it was an amazing experience. So go ahead and, and see if you can watch the original, but try also to not to compare the two. Uh, when for those of you who have seen the original, don't compare the two. There, it's going to be like comparing apples and oranges. Yes, it's going to have have the same title. Yes, you're going to have the same quality of content, but it's going to be a different flavor there because because of the individuals that presented each one of them. So take them as they are. Take them as separate separate entities. So, uh, but enjoy them. And I'm sure this new venture is going to be quite a gem. And I'm looking looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, there was a tweet that Neil Tyson put out on August 5th, and he said, quote, simple logic, worried that Fox viewers don't know, think, or care about science. That's why Cosmos belongs on Fox. Exactly, and that's that's exactly what I was sort of alluding to, Todd. Good move, and I'm glad Dr. Tyson said that because, again, this is going to be a far wider audience than uh, – uh, than throwing it on something like Discovery or uh, the Science Channel or something like that. Uh, I hope people are are, are going to listen and watch and and just enjoy that this new updated series. It's going to be an, it's going to be quite a treat. I'm looking forward to it. Exactly. We will find out soon enough when it airs on Fox in the United States, and looking forward to seeing it. All right. Now we have two final stories here. The first one. As a quick reminder of what is coming up, peaking on this week is the Perseid Meteor Shower, which usually happens around August 12th to 13th to the 14th. Around that time period is when it peaks in August. You can still see some of them now, but it's best time is to see it then. And where do you look? Well, towards the constellation Perseus, and that's where you can find them originating from, but you could see them throughout the entire sky. And what's the best way to see these meteoroids? Is, is it... With a telescope? With binoculars? I don't think so. What's no. the best way? Go outside and just enjoy the show. Naked Eye is the best way to go with this. Uh, in fact, I was outside just, uh, um, I guess it was uh, Friday night, and uh, lo and behold, there was a few uh, streaking by. And, and so the show has begun. It's not, gonna, it's not as spectacular as August 13th will, will be when they peak. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you'll you'll be able to to see a few of them if you go outside right now. So hopefully everyone will go outside and take a look at the Perseid meteor shower, which is around this time every year. I want to finish this off with an amazing poem, and there's no way to hear this poem better than from an amazing storyteller. Mark, 
This one's all you. Well, I'm going to precede this with uh, just a couple little uh, turn the clock back to July 21st. And on that day, I got a, a tweet from somebody that uh, hadn't hadn't noticed on Twitter before. And his tweet was, Pass to all there. Thank you for the nearly 50 years of manned space flight. Your dedication and imaginations make us proud. And that gentleman certainly isn't alone in his wanting to say thank you to to the NASA workforce, the contractors, the people that made it happen. But one of the things that that really uh, that really got my attention was a poem that I'm going to play. I pre-recorded it to make it easy to read through it without getting stuck at different points because honestly. This is something that when I first read it, and if I was to read it again right now, there would be parts where your heart would kind of stop your voice from working, and I think probably there would be a a tear or two in your eye for thinking about it. I've got something I think is very special I'd like to share with everybody, but first I want to give credit to a couple of sources that were essential for having this available and to be able to fill in a little bit more about it. I want to thank nasaspaceflight.com and their Level 2 forum for access to this, and I want to thank Chris Bergen, the nasaspaceflight.com managing editor. I asked him if I could read this poem on our show, and he said that that would be okay. So again, thank you, nasaspaceflight.com, Level 2. Also, to Florida Today, an article written by Dave Berman, and he filled in a little bit of the background that you never would have known with this poem that I'm going to read to you. But they, uh, they, in their article, they talked about Charlie Barnes, age 57. He finished 32 years with the shuttle program at United Space Alliance. He worked on all 135 missions. Recently was manager of a group that designed ground support equipment. And he had 25 employees. About half of them were laid off on the same day that he was laid off. The article mentions that he wasn't upset with United Space Alliance. And he feels that they couldn't have done any better for the employees than they did. Charlie and his wife are picking up and and moving on. They've left the Space Coast and are headed elsewhere. And this poem that he wrote is something making the rounds of the shuttle community, I guess, via email, and I'd like to read it to you. The title of it is Empty Sky. On pillars of fire they rode to the sky, with awe and wonder we'd watch each one fly. The contrails remained, for a while they would linger, like paint on a canvas left there by God's finger. Shuttles were much more than just pieces and parts. They were alive to us with souls and hearts. We'd watch each one rise until it went out of sight, then get back to work for the very next flight. Columbia was first, it seems, long ago. 135 times we've said, three, two, one, go. When Challenger went, she took seven of our best, a moment in time that ripped the hearts from our chest. We got up and kept going. It's part of our spirit, I'd say. And we made it through that onto much brighter days. From satellites to Hubble and the space station too, 
wasn't very much at all that this team couldn't do. When Columbia was lost, it brought back our worst fears. She hit the earth hard, and so did our tears. Bounced back from that, too. It's a harsh business we're in. Made things safer than ever, and got flying again. The space station is finished, and what a magnificent sight. From the mind of man, a new star lights the night. Yet it seems that the country has now lost her way, with dreams put on hold for some distant day. Because our birds could keep flying if they just had the chance. It's like stopping the music before the end of the dance. Or maybe it's right to have a beginning and end with something new coming we just don't know quite when. People like me will move aside and give way. It's time for the new ones to step up to their day. They can look at Atlantis. She'll stay here to retire. Won't fly anymore, but she can still inspire. My dream for the new ones is to give pride to this nation. Maybe the moon and Mars are a bigger space station. And what I will remember the most as I leave KSC is not something I've done, but rather what I can't see. No birds on the pad, no contrails above, that we made happen with our labor of love. With all that we did to make each shuttle fly, it will be hard to look back and see empty sky. This was written by Charlie Barnes on July 22, 2011. That was the day after STS-135 Atlantis landed at KSC, completing the shuttle program. Thank you, Charlie. Wow. What do you say after that? <laughs> the, the, you, st- you stole my line, Gene. I was going to say the same thing. What else <laughs> can you say? What do you say after that? I mean, that is just... That that was a powerful piece. Wow. The the first time I heard that, before we aired it on the show a couple days ago when I heard it, I, I was just floored then and close to tears, and now I, I can't say it's any different. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got goosebumps. I'm not kidding. I mean, seriously, that was just an amazing piece, and it, it, it really, really put the, uh, this, the, 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 the feeling of what the space coast is essentially lost with the shuttle, but it may regain again um, through the commercial providers and possibly through um, if we can get our act together with the uh, uh, the space launch system and and the uh, the Orion uh, multipurpose crew vehicle if we ever get a positive mission for it. Um, I, I can understand the frustration in the words. I can understand the. I don't want to say hurt because it doesn't sound like it's hurt. It just sort of feels like it's another step in the evolution, but it, it, it's more of an, you know, and uh, just stating the outrage of the fact that we're not flying anymore and um, we should be. And I, I think that's that comes out in the in here. But that was such, I mean, wow, uh, that was such a powerful piece. And again, thank you to um, NASA Spaceflight and and everybody who allowed us to share that with, with you. I appreciate it. Thanks.
I agree. And Mark, if you ever lose your job, you'd be a good storyteller because that was phenomenal. Thank you, Sora. That's uh, that's much appreciated. Hey, Todd, I didn't hear from you, man. What, what, you you kind of recovering here, or, or... <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I... yeah. Go ahead. No, no, it's very well done, and uh, it can only come from someone who lived it. You know, I, yeah. it's hard for somebody outside to really get a, a grasp of of the history there, but. Um, there's a part of everybody's heart here in, in that poem, for yeah, sure. I agree with you there. <laughs> there was a comment made uh, during the post-launch news conference for Juno that I'll, I'll kind of back up and throw in at this point. Uh, Todd Halverson from Florida Today asked the question about, you know, did they think at all about this being the first launch post shuttle and uh jim adams who is the deputy director of planetary science from washington from headquarters with nasa he said no they uh you know the effect wasn't lost on him he said of course he really didn't know how close we were going to be to the end of the uh the shuttle program but as the last shuttle flight moved around and and eventually ended up being just before juno that uh, they were they were kind of privileged to be there. Uh, they were glad to have the rocket that they were flying because the Atlas V was was such an impressive launch to see and to hear. And uh, the uh, the lead investigator for Juno, Scott Bolton, he said that uh, that they thought about it too. He said initially he said we were looking at uh, putting our mission together. And uh, then we looked to see where Jupiter was going to be and where the Earth was going to be. And he said the launch date pretty much picked them. They didn't really pick the launch date. And, of course, that, that makes sense when you think about what they have to do to get there and how they can do it with the least amount of fuel and the, and the quickest trip. But uh, it was something that even, you know, here we are on a, a launch to another planet, and it's something that's thought about. So the effect of this goes through throughout all of NASA, throughout the space community. And the poem I would like to, to add, uh, I'm not a writer. Uh, the few times I've sat down to, to put pen to paper, whether it's, and maybe Todd can uh, relate to this with the work you've done for music for our show, but this stuff doesn't come instantly. And the man who wrote this poem, uh, you know, I said that he wrote it on the 22nd. That was the day it was dated, of July. But no doubt it was something that he worked over for quite a while, and he pulled his whole career into it, and that's something that uh, is makes it even more valuable. Mark, it's amazing how emotions can really carve out the words for you. Uh, I've been writing songs for a long time, and uh, some of them with words, some of them instrumental, but uh, yeah, they all come from somewhere, and... Uh, how you can't get any more honest, you know, about it than than when it comes from uh, the heart, and it's not. I can completely understand. And on that note, I think we should bring this episode to its close. So with that, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us tonight. Thank you, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer, and um, 
Todd, before I, I've actually I've got two points. Todd, first off, I want to publicly thank you for writing uh, the theme to the show. It was something that we didn't ask you to do. You just stepped up in front of it and and said, "Here, I've got a piece. Um, would you want to use it?" And uh, I, I jumped at it. Uh, but again, I, I want to say thank you. You've gone above and beyond for us every time. So I'm, I'm going to use the form here to publicly embarrass you here. So thank you so much. Um, the the other form, the other thing I want to use the form for is a thank you to a, a whole bunch of people. Uh, I lost a little bit of a family member here. It it it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a human family member. It was a pet, and. Uh, you know, you these little creatures get into your heart and and stay there for a long time, and it still still hurts when when they leave. And um, I, I never really realized the outpouring of support I, I I got until after afterward. And I was looking at, at Twitter, and I had a whole mess of people to just go ahead and and send me notes of, notes of uh, you know support and encouragement and so on. So I just wanted use this forum to to thank everybody who did that there's a long list and we'd be here all night if i went ahead and wrote it and said it so um i just want to thank everybody that did that so thanks a lot thank you as well for joining us mark ratterman it's a pleasure it's always fun to talk about space huh that'd be a good title for a show talking space yeah i guess it would wouldn't it yeah and again a special thank you for joining us todd cecilia Thank you very much. I had a really good time. Uh, enjoy uh, the subject, obviously. It's and uh, it's been a pleasure to contribute, and I'll I'll continue to do that as much as I can. Thank you very much for letting me on tonight. Doors always open, Todd. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for coming on. And before we play your music, we have one last thing to say, as always, and that is. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.